Welcome to Hackstack, the show that gives you all the tips, tricks and advice you need to increase your productivity, lower your stress level and find ultimate purpose in life. All done, one simple step at a time. And now, here is your host, Coz. Well, hello, boys and girls. Come on in, gather around, let's have a seat and let's get ready for Hackstack episode number four. Uh, for those of you just joining us for the first time, please go back and listen to episodes one through three, because this show makes a whole lot more sense when listened to in order. Um, in the last episode, uh, episode three, concerning the slight edge, that's golden. That's concepts we're going to hit time and time again. So you want to make sure you listen to the slight edge in episode three. So with that little disclaimer out of the way, let's go ahead and get started for today. Now, you may have noticed in the podcast intro, there was an unequivocal promise made by my British friend about lowering your stress level. To this point, I have not delivered on that promise at all, like not even in the slightest. Well, here we are, episode four, and that is all about to change. To me, everything before this has simply been concept only. And to continue our golf analogy, so far, all we've done is worked on our grip Stance, head, and arm position during backswing, but now we are finally, after three full episodes are in our rearview mirror, we are ready to swing at the golf ball, and that's why I'm totally geeked out about this episode. It's finally time to take some action. So I want to start this show off with a story about a family vacation of mine. A few years back, my parents, you can refer to them as Mama and Papa Kaz, decided to take us all on a vacation. And when I say us, I mean everyone. It was me, my two brothers, my sisters, uh, spouses, you know, all our kids. uh, So from my parents' perspective, pretty much everyone. Their kids and the grandkids, and it was just a grand old time. And uh, the destination they chose was a cruise. So we had the, the luxury of going on a cruise line and stopping at many ports and stuffing our faces and all that good stuff. And uh, when we planned this, my brother knew one of the stops was going to be Belize. And knowing that this is one of the most perfect places for this activity, my brother asked me if I wanted to go scuba diving. Now, my brother has been scuba diving many, many times before. Me? Not so much. I'm Scuba Sam. Right. Scuba Steve's father. I know, exactly. So I was a little hesitant. I said, well... Look, I would need to take lessons, and finances a little tight right now. You know, I started making up excuses for me just being outside of my comfort zone. And that's when my big bro said, well, you know what? I'll pay for all your lessons and all your equipment, and you don't have to worry about a thing. All you have to do is show up and take the lesson and be prepared for an experience of a lifetime. So here's the basic rule. When someone asks you to go scuba diving, and they're going to pay for all your lessons and all your equipment, I'm pretty sure you're obligated to say yes. I don't know, but I think that's like a universal law. So, of course, what I do, I said yes. So over a period of maybe a month or two, I took a few lessons per week until I was a certified scuba diving expert. And when I say certified expert, I mean there was not many people out there that were better than me at scuba diving in a nine-foot pool at the YMCA. I'm just keeping it real. I think I was nationally ranked pool diver at that point in my scuba diving career. So the big Kaz family vacation finally arrives. We are on our cruise, and Belize was the second port that we stopped in. We departed the boat, 
caught a cab, go to the scuba diving dock area. Uh, we're running a little bit late, but we get to the boat just fine. And at the boat, it's me and my two brothers. So we all three suit up. And just like you see in the movies, we sit on the edge of the boat with our tanks facing outward. And we all just sort of fall backwards into the water. Now, keep in mind that both of my brothers have had diving experience. And I have had no experience besides my, uh, my voyage at the local YMCA. So we dive off the boat backwards. Then, boom, I am totally submerged in water. Those first few minutes were wild. I'm excited, nervous, a little stressed. I feel like I have no idea what I'm doing. My breathing is, is a little bit erratic, but I'm trying my best to just go with the flow. So we all three start to dive deeper and deeper, and we hit maybe, I don't know, 15 or 20 feet, and something seems a little bit off to me. Now keep in mind, at 20 feet, I'm already two times deeper than my skill level in the swimming pools back in Indiana would allow me to go. And I just remember having this like tremendous pressure in my ears. And that's the point I tried to remember back to my, my training and, and figure out why my ears were hurting so bad. Uh, so I remember I, I had to equalize my ears or try to equalize my ears, which basically means you, you close your mouth, you pinch your nose, and you try to gently blow, and then you should be uh, should be good to go. Well, um, I tried that, and for whatever reason, I just could not equalize. And I couldn't go any lower. I'm talking to my, well, I'm not talking to my brothers. I'm trying to gesture to my brothers, and they're gesturing back. And <laughs> it's not the bad kind of gesture. They're trying to communicate. They're trying to solve this problem for me. But I'm a newbie. I have no idea what they're trying to communicate. Um, you know, what the gesture means. I'm starting to get a little bit more frustrated. So finally, I just I just sort of wave them down. I'm like, hey, go ahead. I wave them down. Uh, I'll, I'll be hanging out here at the 15 feet depth level. You guys go have fun kind of thing. And uh, somehow they, they understood what I was saying, and they decided to, to go down without me, which was totally fair. So both my brothers start to dive deeper and deeper, and at one point I can barely see them. I know they're enjoying the scenery down there, uh, starting to see all sorts of fish and vegetation and starfish and plant life. And who knows what else they're doing down there. They could be hunting lobsters. Heck, for all I know, they probably found Nemo. All I know is I'm stuck at 15 feet wishing I was down there with them. Then I start to feel frustrated, a little nervous again. Then all of a sudden I feel a bit overwhelmed, realizing that there was no one around me. And at that time, I almost started to go into panic mode. But then finally, my brothers started to come back up to my level with big smiles on their face and big thumbs up. And, and finally, we all get to the surface and then we get back in the boat together. Now, after all that, the one thing that really sticks out in me is that I noticed our oxygen tanks. Their tanks still had plenty of air left in them. Mine, however, was almost empty. Now, how is it that both my brothers could have so much oxygen left in their tank even though we spent the exact same amount of time underwater. Well, when you're nervous and anxious and unprepared, your body uses more oxygen. So now why is this important to you? Well, let me dig into this topic just a little bit deeper, and then it may start to make sense. I did some research, and apparently using too much oxygen while scuba diving is a relatively common occurrence. So I, I found an article that gave some suggestions on how to use 
less oxygen when you're scuba diving. And here's some of the things that the article mentioned. Swim slowly, breathe deeply, and breathe slowly. Now, the obvious implication here is that you need to relax your body, reduce your stress level, and reduce your anxiety level. Now, keep this scuba diving imagery in your mind and think about your typical day. Everyone starts their day with the same amount of oxygen in their tank. To be more explicit, what I'm trying to say is everyone has the same 24 hours in a day. Some people just are more efficient, less stressed, and more relaxed during the day, and thus they use less oxygen, so to speak. Here is the last thing the article mentioned. Be early to the boat. If you're running late, you start the day breathing hard, and you never have a chance to calm down, and your stress level goes up. What a simple concept. Get to the boat early. And that's what I want to talk to you guys about today. Imagine your typical morning. Your alarm goes off and you hit the snooze button. And immediately you start to wrestle with yourself. Should I get up? Should I not get up? Maybe a few more minutes. Um, And you go into this continual cycle about hitting the snooze button. Then you hit it a couple more times and you feel guilty because you don't have the willpower to get up. Then you hit the snooze button again and you sleep a little longer. And each time you hit the snooze button, it's like a psychological punch in your gut of resolve. And you start, you start your day, honestly, feeling a little beat up. Well, today we're going to talk about how to beat that feeling and start the day calmly and with purpose and ambition and how you can attack the day instead of the other way around. Instead of feeling beat up in the morning, you're going to feel in control. Now, I think this is an episode for everyone, but you may want to especially listen up or tell people that you know that are are single mothers or stay-at-home moms. Uh, Because just imagine, instead of wrestling with a snooze button, you wake up to screaming kids. I mean, kids, especially small kids and toddlers, they can suck the patience right out of you like a vampire if you're not careful. So make sure to share these concepts. Does this sound like a miracle? Well, actually, it is. It's a concept called the miracle morning. Now, just to give you the heads up, this miracle morning concept does involve getting up, shockingly, a little earlier in the morning. And I know some of you are probably already whining and saying to yourself that you're not a morning person, but with that comment, I want to refer back to episode one, and we'll talk about our million-dollar question hack, which is anytime someone says, I can't do something, even if it's yourself, you got to frame it up in the million-dollar question. So, for example, if you're going to say you can't get up earlier in the morning, this is what I'm going to ask you. So, if I were to give you a million dollars, are you telling me that you couldn't get up earlier in the morning for a million dollars? Okay, so when you frame it like that, it, it does kind kind of sound silly. So again, I know not everyone is a morning person, but just, just hang with me for a little bit because I want to go over a few things. Uh, a few famous people you may have heard of. Jack Dorsey of Twitter fame starts his day off at 5.30 a.m. and his morning routine starts with meditation, and then followed by a jog. Oh, and by the way, uh, Hackstack is now on Twitter, and you can follow us at Hackstack Show. Just thought I would throw in that plug. We are on Twitter, at Hackstack Show. All right, who else we got for you? Howard Schultz, you guys heard of him? Starbucks guy? CEO at Starbucks. He starts his day at 4.30 a.m., goes for a bike ride, and then is in the office at 6 a.m. 
Uh, who else? Who else? Um, if you remember from episode two, uh, Eric Thomas, hip hop preacher guy, who was interviewed, he he said he gets up at three in the morning. Now I don't know how often he does that. That's a little that's a little insane. But hey, sometimes it's good to be a little insane if you need to uh, accomplish a goal. So hip hop preacher gets up at at three a.m. occasionally or every day. So he says. And guess what? I don't know if you noticed anything else from that interview, but Eric Thomas mentioned Warren Buffett. Now, Warren Buffett starts his day off with six hours of reading. Six hours of reading. And he's like the, what, richest guy in the universe? Now, again, you got to be careful who you, who you model and who, who, you, who you follow. So Warren Buffett, if you want to learn about making money, probably a good person to, to talk to or to study. Um, Relationship-wise, maybe not the best of people to, to follow. He's he's basically got two wives. It's it's kind of a convoluted story. But I read that in his book, uh, Snowball, which, ironically, just so you know why it's named Snowball, uh, Warren Buffett contends if you start off with just one snowflake and you build it up over time, eventually you can get a huge snowball. Now, does that sound familiar? Does that sound like the slide edge? So when you start to hear these concepts pop up in multiple different places, it's it's time to take notice. Again, all these all these famous rich people are, are are getting up early and starting their day off early. It doesn't mean it's it's right, but man, you, you sure want to you want to pay attention to this. This is this is this has got a good payoff. So I know some of you are not morning people, but we'll we'll talk about that a little bit later. But this this miracle morning concept, it's. It's tremendous. I'm no Vanderbilt, but this train makes hay. All right, so here we go. To emphasize the point, here is an interview with Hal Elrod. He wrote the book Miracle Morning, and this is an interview on the Rory Baden podcast. It's a, a business podcast. It's another podcast I would, I would recommend. Uh, the name of the podcast is called Daily Disciplines. It really fits in with what we're talking about, slide edge style. So check it out. Here is an interview with the concept covered being the miracle morning. Check it out. You know that a lot of times I bring my close friends on. The other uh, guests that I love to have are people who actually inspire me, like their story inspires me. And the gentleman that you're about to hear from, his name is Hal Elrod. And I'm telling you, it's not very often that you meet somebody who who literally came back from the dead. And you're uh, uh, you're going to hear Hal's story in just a second. But um, he is the author of a best selling book called The Miracle Morning, and we're going to talk about it. Uh, he's an author, obviously. He's a coach. Uh, speaks speaks all over the place and uh, fairly young guy just like me and and uh, man I am so excited to introduce you to him he has an incredible incredible story so Hal thanks for being on the Daily Discipline podcast Rory this is my pleasure man I am a, I'm a fan of yours and I'm excited to be here oh it's it's a pleasure and and I mean so the story I, I, you were hit head on by a drunk driver and and I, I want you to tell us a little bit about that. Um, but before we before we dive into that, um, can you just kind of tell us about this this new best selling book, The Miracle Morning? And I I know that a lot of people are calling it one of the most life changing books that that has ever been written. Can you just kind of give us a quick synopsis of of what it's about? Yeah, yeah, man. And I'll tell you, I, it's this is a, it's a surprise to me. When I wrote the book, I had no idea that it would become this popular or 
Uh, in fact, my, my assistant, uh, one of my team members, he just emailed me and he did some calculations and he said, Hal, the Miracle Morning is in the top one-tenth of one percent um, of the 11 million books on Amazon in terms of five-star reviews. And I was just, uh, you know, I was like, really? I had no awesome. idea. Um, and the premise is the idea that, look, if you want to take your life to the next level and change, you know, whether it's your, your personal life, your professional life, health, whatever, you've got to change something that you do daily, right? That's what I think John Maxwell said that, that the secret to your success is changing something that you do daily. And what I, through kind of research and hitting a rock bottom, which we can go into in a few minutes here, here when we come back uh, after my, 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 the story that you want me to share, um, I had hit a rock bottom and, and really after doing a little bit of research, I realized, wow, successful people wake up early. And I wasn't a morning person. I was the snooze guy and I hit the snooze button three times, five times, <laughs> get out the door, rushed and hectic. And I realized successful people wake up an hour or two before they have to be awake and they work on themselves. In other words, they work on becoming, developing themselves to become the person they need to be that can, that can really easily attract, create and sustain the levels of success that they want. And I wasn't doing that. And so I started doing it. I created the most extraordinary personal development routine that I could ever imagine in the morning. And within two months, I had doubled my income. I got in the bed. I mean, just amazing things happened. And that's what became the miracle morning, but I never intended it to become a book. It was just my own thing. Sure. And, uh, and one thing led to another. And now it's, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's being impacting people around the world in the same way it did for me. Yeah. Well, I mean, there is something just magic about those early hours of the morning and and the daily stuff. I mean, you know, the, one of the, the the catchphrases of "Take the Stairs," success is never owned; it's rented, and the rent is due every day. And mm. so, you know, that was one of the things I think that attracted me to you is just sort of the congruence of the message. And and I, I love the focus on this this early morning routine. But so before we get into that, I, your, I want your story because that's the yeah. part that was really powerful to me. Um, you talk about hitting these rock bottoms, um, and the first rock bottom. You're 20 years old. You're hit head on by a drunk driver at 70 miles an hour, um, and you're found. You were literally found dead at, at the scene, right? Like, like, is, can you tell? Just tell us what happened. Yeah. So at, at that time in my life, I'm 20 years old. Um, I was a year and a half into a career in direct sales, and um, I had been real fortunate to have a really, a, you know, a brilliant mentor that guided me, and I ended up being one of the top sales reps in the history of the company. I'd broken all sorts of sales records and that sort of thing. And um, one night I was asked to give a speech uh, on, you know, kind of a motivational speech on what I was doing to be successful. And after the speech, I got um, my first standing ovation. So it was kind of like a special moment. I had never gotten that before. And I was pretty excited. Uh, got in my brand new Ford Mustang, which at age 20, it was like my dream car. I had just bought it three weeks prior. It was a white Ford Mustang, five-speed. Uh, driving on the freeway, feel, really feeling on top of the world. Like my last memory from that night was just feeling so grateful and excited about how the night went and my life and everything else. And a man that I'd never met before uh, left the bar after two beers, got on the freeway going the wrong direction. I don't remember the headlights coming at me. I don't remember what I was thinking. I, I don't remember any of that, that actual occurrence. But I was hit head on at 70 miles an hour. You know, both of us were doing 70 miles an hour for 140 mile an hour impact. And the worst was actually yet to come, Rory. My car spun off the drunk driver into oncoming traffic, and the car behind me hit me in my door at 70 miles an hour. So you can imagine sitting in your car and having a car run into your door at 70 miles an hour full speed. And if you, if you go to my website, halelrod.com, you can see the pictures of the car, but you can't even recognize it. People always go, well, where's the other half of the car? It looks like half of a car. And I say the other half of the car was 
in my, the left side of my body. And I broke 11 bones instantaneously. I broke my leg in two pieces. My femur broke in half. My pelvis broke in three places. My, my arm broke in half behind the bicep, severed my ear. Um, the bones around my eye were completely destroyed. It's all rebuilt oh in metal now. And I was so crushed in the car that even when the ambulance and the fire department got there, you know, 15 minutes later, they couldn't get me out. It took them an hour to cut me out of the car. And when they finally did, I had lost so much blood during that hour, you know, just being trapped in the car uh, that I actually bled to death. And my heart stopped beating on the side of the freeway, and I was clinically dead for approximately six minutes. Uh, <clears throat> rushed to the hospital in a coma for six days. I had 11 surgeries, repairing all the broken bones. Came out of the coma. The doctor said I would never walk again and, uh, and that I had suffered permanent brain damage. I had pretty much no short-term memory. And, uh, and that's really the reality that I was faced with that, that, you know, to me was my first rock bottom. It's like I can't imagine life being, being much worse than this, you know? Well, I mean, that is, I mean, the fact that you're alive, brother, it's, it's like, uh, you know, regardless of what you believe, God and miracles are around you. Like the fact that you, yes. are, that you are here, uh, there's, there is somebody looking out for you. And uh, what, a, what, a, what, a, what, a, what a story. Um, so, so that happens. That's obviously a, a, a major defining moment. And, you know, the rest of your life is just blessing to, to be here. And, and that, but so it's interesting in, in, in the Miracle Morning book, though, you, you, so you talk about that, but you talk about a second rock bottom that was different from the car accident uh, that happened later, like like eight years or something, and you you say that is worse than the accident, which to me is hard. It's like what's worse than dying? <laughs> like how do you, how, how do you get worse than that? Um, sure, but you know that's kind of part of um, what spurred the, the miracle morning. So tell us about the second rock bottom. Yeah, so so after the accident, the doctor said I would never walk again, and I told you know that my, I didn't tell the doctors I didn't want to get confrontational. But when the doctors left the room, you know my parents were just crying; they were distraught, and I wasn't. I said, "Look, mom and dad," I said, "Number one, the doctors are not experts in me. They might be experts in medicine; they're not experts in me." And I said, "And I've already decided." And this was like a week after I came out of my coma. I said, "One of two options: either um, the doctors, if they are correct, and I'm never able to walk again." I've already decided that I'm at peace with it and I'll be the happiest person you've ever met in a wheelchair. Um, and, 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 and kind of funny, I did tell them, I said, and mom, mom and dad, remember my dream was to be a motivational speaker. I go, you know, but you guys were so good to me. I don't really have anything that, you know, I've ever had to overcome. So, you know, God, I wouldn't have asked for this, but maybe that's why this happened. I don't know. Right. And I said, the other option though, is I'm going to walk again and I'm putting all my energy, all my faith, all my prayer, all my, you know, all my, I'm visualizing that I'm going to walk again. And uh, a week later, the doctors came back with the x-rays and they said, Hal, we don't know how to explain this, but your, your body is healing miraculously. We're going to let you take your first step in, in therapy tomorrow. And I, I started walking again. I left the hospital four weeks later. Um, I, uh, I begged my dad to drive me to sales appointments. And I ended up that year, I was one of the top sales reps again with other people driving me to my appointments because of the brain damage. I couldn't drive my car. So I kind of, I got back on track very quickly. I ended up being one of the youngest members of the hall of fame. And I'm just kind of giving you the transition here to the second rock bottom. Yeah. But, um, and then I, I left my sales career after I hit the hall of fame and I launched a, uh, I wrote my first best-selling book, Taking Life Head On. Uh, I, I launched a coaching business doing life coaching, sales coaching, you know, success coaching, that sort of thing. And I, I started my speaking career. And uh, a few years into that, it was going phenomenal. 
and the U.S. economy crashed. And like you can relate to and so many Americans, um, the, uh, for me, I lost over half of my income. It felt like it was overnight. I mean, it really was, you know, it happened gradually over like a six-month period. But it was basically my clients couldn't afford to pay me. You know, companies weren't bringing in speakers at that point. They were really tight with their budgets. And I lost over half my income. I couldn't pay my bills. I, I, I couldn't pay the mortgage. I lost my house to the bank. Um, I stopped exercising completely because I was in such fear and scarcity mode trying to just wake up in the morning and figure out how to make some money or turn things around. And, um, the, and I got deeply depressed. More depre- I've never been so depressed in my life to where I was, I was suicidal. I didn't want to get out of bed in the morning. I didn't want to live. I didn't, I, 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 and it, it felt hopeless because it kept getting worse. I thought it was at the rock bottom. Then it got worse. Another client canceled. Another creditor called, etc. And to keep a, a, a relatively long story short, after the six-month downward spiral into depression and financial ruin and, and you name it, physical, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, just kind of at the rock bottom, um, uh, a, a conversation with a friend led to me going on a run, which I hated at this time. And on that run, I heard a quote from Jim Rohn that, that changed my entire life, and it's the basis of my life and the Miracle Morning now. And here's the quote. Your level of success will seldom exceed your level of personal development because success is something you attract by the person you become. And I realized I'm not dedicating time every day to becoming the person that I need to be to, to create the levels of success that I want. In other words, I want my life to improve, but I'm not dedicating time every day to my self-improvement. Right. And, and it's like I knew that. Like, you know, if someone would ask me, hey, do you need to get better to get, you know, make your life better? Should you get better first? I'd probably be like, yeah, but I wasn't doing it. And it's like you say, right? It's that self-discipline, doing what you know you need to do. And so I decided, I went home, I did some research, and I basically came up with the six most uh, sworn by personal development practices, you know, by any expert or guru, meditation, affirmations, visualization, exercise, reading, and journaling. And the next morning I woke up and I did all six of them from 5 a.m. to 6 a.m., which was crazy for me. I wasn't a morning person. And two months later, my theory going into this was this could be the one thing that changes everything for me, but I had no idea how profound it would be. Two months later, I had more than doubled my income, taking it from 5000 a month to 12000 a month. I went from being in the worst shape of my life to training for a 52-mile ultra marathon, wow. which I completed a few months later, and it was just to show that kind of just show the doctors, you know, hey, tell me I can't walk, right? And, uh, and my depression was gone within like 48 hours. So that's, that's the, uh, the kind of the, the general idea of how the Miracle Morning was born. And, and now there's tens of thousands of people around the world that, you know, that are losing weight, they're increasing their income, they're quitting smoking, they're reading more, they're improving their relationships, everything as a result of making sure they start every day in the optimum way. So, and... What you know, people. That snooze button. It's so funny. The snooze button is a is a the decision point of it's it's a stairs versus escalator decision point. It's the first one every day. And yep. you, you you say that you have this sort of five step snooze proof wake up strategy. And um, can you just tell us what that is? Yeah, when it's funny, it's that is arguably the most important chapter in my book, but I never intended it to be, and I didn't know it would be, and it's the shortest chapter. And the reason is. You know, the Miracle Morning does a very good job of getting you to understand that the arguably the single most important improvement you can make in your life to improve your success is, is create that morning success ritual. And then it tells you what to do, you know, the six practices, how to do them, how long to do them. But without that middle piece of, well, how do I get my butt out of bed 
this book and, and the concept would have fallen flat on its face. Because people would have read it and be like, yeah, I was so inspired, and then I, but I couldn't get out of, you know, I tried and I failed, right? Because we're all such snoozeaholics. So the, the, the five steps, snooze proof wake up strategy, I'll, I'll just give you, your listeners a few of the most important steps. Number one, you've got to set your intentions before bed. Um, your last thought before you go to bed is almost always your first thought in the morning. Yeah. And that's why when you were, you know, when I was a kid on Christmas, right, I, I went to bed excited. I couldn't wait to wake up. And Rory, did you celebrate Christmas growing up? Yeah, yeah, and you wake up that way. It wasn't hard to get out of bed in the morning because you went to bed with the right intentions, and I realized that we can recreate that every day. So that's, that's the first awesome. step, set your intentions. Second step, move your alarm clock as far across the room as possible. <laughs> if it's by your bedside table, you're going to make the wrong decision every time because you're half asleep when you're making that decision. But if it's across the room and you've got to get out of bed, now you're half awake, now it's easy. And last but not least, Make sure you drink a full glass of water first thing in the morning because by default, we're all dehydrated, which creates fatigue. You've got to replenish that, rehydrate first thing in the morning so that it's easy to, to wake up and, you know, and, and, and make it an optimum day. I love it. I love it. I mean, that, uh, what you, I totally agree. It's like one of the biggest the habits of successful people is they fall asleep thinking about what they want in their life and vis- vividly visualizing that. Um, so we are running short on time. Sure. It always goes sure. by so fast. Uh, I want to get one more quick little thing from you. You have this chapter in the Miracle Morning um, called the Six Minute Miracle Morning. Can, yes. So, so what, what, is, what is that all about? Yeah, it's, it sounds like eight minute abs or whatever, right? Um, <laughs> yeah. So it, it's not, and it, it almost sounds like kind of like, oh, is that just a gimmicky thing? What happened was there were a lot of days when I was doing the Miracle Morning, and this is something I created for myself. None of this was created to be a book, you know? It was just something that changed my life, and I felt a sense of responsibility to, to kind of pay it forward and share it. So I had a lot of days where I'd be like, oh, man, I don't have time, right? Who, who, who amongst us doesn't have that thought? throughout every day, right? Oh, I really would love to do this, but I don't have time. And there were a lot of days that I'd have with a miracle morning. So one day I did a 30-minute miracle morning instead of 60 minutes. I was like, wow, that's just as powerful. And then one day I was like, man, I don't have time. I thought, wait a minute, what if I did a six-minute miracle morning, one minute of meditation and prayer, one minute of really focused affirmations, one minute of really focused visualization, one minute of jumping jacks where I get my heart rate up and blood and oxygen to my brain, one minute of journaling what I'm grateful for. I went through one minute of a self-help book, right? The entire miracle morning in six minutes, and I did it, and here was the profound thing. It took one-tenth of the time, but I still got roughly 90% of the benefit. Uh-huh. And so I don't recommend, I don't advocate, hey, do a six-minute miracle morning every day. But I do, I, I, I put that in the book. It's an important chapter because it makes you realize there's no excuse. I can, everybody can fit that in. So for me, I do a six-minute miracle morning probably twice a week. And then the rest of the week, I do a full hour. I love it. I love it. Six minutes because it's, it's, it's more about the decision to do those things and, and to start the process of doing them that gives you that 90% of, uh, of the benefit. It's just making that making that choice, making that decision. Uh, folks, it, you know, Hal Elrod is who we're talking to. You can get the Miracle Morning, halelrod.com is where people should go to get in touch with you for yeah. books, all, all that. And Amazon, Amazon.com is the best place to get the book at for sure. Okay, so you want them to go to Amazon to get the book um, and then halelrod.com to learn about speaking, coaching, etc. Yeah, and if anybody's listening, by the way, and, and if you're really tight on money right now and, you know, you and your wife have a deal like where, hey, we can't spend a dollar if it's not food for the kids, like we're on a budget right now, um, you can go to MiracleMorning.com and get the Miracle Morning Fast Start Kit totally free. So MiracleMorning.com gives you a free video training, a free audio training, and the first few chapters of the book totally free. Awesome. 
Well, Hal, I mean, God bless you, brother. It is obviously, uh, you are obviously saved because there is work that you still have to do here. Um, and I get the sense that you are doing it and uh, your story is inspiring to me. And just uh, this idea of having a, making every morning a miracle morning and, and a simple routine. That's um, just, it's just awesome. So keep doing what you're doing, brother. We wish you the best. Thanks, Roy. I appreciate it, my friend. Thank you so much. What a story. What a story and how important that morning routine is to setting the, the course of your life, to setting your, your happiness on track, to, to finding joy in everything that you do. That morning routine is so important. And I wrote a mini blog not that long ago on the seven or a mini blog series, a mini series on my blog called The Seven Realizations of Rich People. And one of the, the biggest things that was, it's one of the highest trafficked miniseries or set of articles that I've ever written. And one of the biggest parts was talking about the morning routine of rich people and, and wealthy people. And it's just amazing how much they have in common and not just money, but people, people who have happiness and joy. And it has changed my life. And the, 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 the way that I start and end every day is always exactly the same. You know, I wake up in the morning and the first thing that happens as soon as I hit the alarm clock is I start saying, thank you. I start counting my blessings. I say, thank you for my wife. Thank you for my house. Thank you for, you know, just everything and, and just saying thank you. And that is what starts the day. Then immediately when I get up, the very first thing that I read, I'm always very intentional. For me, it is the Bible. I don't want a text message or a tweet or a Facebook update or an email to be the first thing that I read, the first thing that enters into my mind. I, I want it to be God's word. That is what speaks to me and that gives me perspective and it gets me centered right from the beginning. Then the next thing that I do is I read all the affirmations, right? I start reading the affirmations, uh, my affirmations. I read my goals. I started reading my wife's goals. Uh, I read our creed from Southwestern Consulting, our partners pact. Uh, there's, there's different things that I'll read um, in the morning and then Time to do some do some physical exercise, even if it's just a few minutes. You got to do it. But that morning routine uh, is it, set. I mean, the way that you start your day is the way that you start your life. It is the course. It is the course sets the trajectory of the entire day. Okay, there you go. That was Hal Elrod interviewed on the Rory Vaden podcast. Uh, pretty interesting stuff. And Rory at the end, he threw out a uh, a marriage hack. I don't know if you caught that, but. I know some of you folks think you know your spouse really well, but Rory had mentioned as part of his daily routines, he, he goes over his wife's goal. So just think about that. Do you know your wife's goal? Girls, do you know your husband's goal? And that's pretty interesting. I think that's a, a good way to build relationships is to go over each other's goals. But that's just a side note. Okay, so back to the task at hand. Now, hopefully you guys are starting to see that uh, getting up early in the morning is, is a is a pretty good thing. But again, I know some of you are night owls and you consider yourself night owls. So to answer that question, I've got another clip from a book by John Acuff. John, J-O-N, Acuff, A-C-U-F-F, John Acuff. It's a book called Start. And the subtitle is Punch Fear in the Face, Escape Average, do work that matters. Uh, pretty cool title, Punch Fear in the Face. So his whole spiel in this book is to go after your goals is to be awesome and to not go after your goals is to be average. So he talks in that kind of language. So just kind of heads up as I play this clip. And I'm going to go a little long on the clip 
just so he's got a really interesting take on a, a plane crash, a hypothetical plane crash that I, I think you guys may find interesting. So I'm going to go ahead and play that as well. So here it is. Start by John Acuff. I was selfish at the wrong time of day. Those hours in the middle of the day during Christmas vacation weren't really mine. When you're a spouse, parent, or caregiver, your time doesn't just belong to you. It's in large part communal property, shared by the entire house. But that doesn't mean you can't be selfish with some of that time. You just have to know when you can be, which is why I mentioned 5 a.m. The mornings I get up and write from 5 a.m. to 5.30, you'd be surprised at how infrequently my wife tells me I've been ignoring her. You'd be shocked at how rarely my oldest daughter wants me to watch her jump rope before the sun breaks the horizon. You may even be mystified at how seldom my youngest daughter asks to go bike riding at 5.15 a.m. You can be selfish at 5 a.m. or 11 p.m. if your spouse goes to bed early and staying up an extra 30 minutes doesn't wreck your next day. You can also rescue 30 minutes during lunch. Last I checked, you don't need a full hour to eat a turkey sandwich, even if the cheese is organic, gluten-free, utter-to-table cheese. The point is that you can carve out time in your day and claim it, if you're willing to hustle. If you're not married or don't have kids, this idea still applies. Your time is still shared, especially if you have a full-time job. Your boss may never cry in your arms in the kitchen on the day after Christmas. That would be weird. But if you're selfish with the wrong hours, your boss may indeed say to you, Hey, last I checked, um, we were paying you to work for us. Am I off base here? We all have commitments we have to keep. In one form or another, we all have spouses with expectations that should be met. We also have dreams that need attention. To start, just be selfish at 5 a.m. And if you don't like the word selfish, then rewrite that idea. I won't be offended. Call it your get furious at 5 mandate. Whatever word you want to use, rescue 30 minutes to walk down your path to awesome. If you can't, if the idea of setting your alarm 30 minutes earlier sounds horrible to you, then you may not be ready for awesome. If your dream isn't worth 30 minutes, you either got the wrong dream or you're just pretending you have one. If the minimum you're willing to pay in order to be awesome is less than 30 minutes, you'd better go back to average. Nobody gets up early on the road to average. Nobody stays up late on the road to average. You can sleep into your heart's content or watch late night TV until the infomercials begin to make perfect sense. Either way, you're safe on the average road. One reason 5 a.m. tends to dominate 11 p.m. I'm a night owl is often the excuse people give me when I encourage them to get up early and work on their dream. I think that's a fair pushback. I think there are probably some people who may be predisposed to going to bed later than others. But after hearing that response from so many of my friends over the years, I decided to see if my belief about the importance of mornings could be backed up by research maybe even with science. Here's what I found. Willpower tends to favor the morning. In a well-known 1996 research project led by Roy Baumeister at Case Western Reserve University, scientists had two groups of people sit down in a room. One group was told that they could eat the warm chocolate chip cookies in the bowl in front of them. They just had to ignore the other bowl, which was full of radishes. The next group was told just the opposite. Eat the radishes, resist the cookies. After the experiment, researchers came back in the room and told the participants they needed to tabulate the results. Would they mind waiting around? While they were waiting, could they try to solve this simple puzzle? Only the puzzle wasn't all that simple. It actually had no solution. The scientists just wanted to see how long each person would attempt to solve it. Can you guess what happened? 
The people who had to eat the radishes and resist the cookies tried an average of about eight minutes before they gave up and quit. The people who ate the cookies tried an average of about 19 minutes. Why? It appears that willpower is finite. We have a limited supply of it. The people who ate the radishes and fought back the desire to eat the warm cookies were out of willpower. Their supply was depleted. They didn't want to do the puzzle. The people who ate the cookies, they had a full supply. They are willing to try more than twice as long. In his book, The Power of Habit, Charles Duhigg describes how this study helped shed light on things like executives having affairs at night. After a stressful day of being on, making difficult decisions, fighting, and leading, executives have very little left in the tank. This suggestion by researchers is by no means a justification for bad behavior, but it does give us a better understanding of how we're wired. Have you ever had a task or activity that if you didn't do it in the morning, it didn't happen when you got home from work? If you missed your jog at 6 a.m. after a day at the office and a long commute home, there was very little chance it would happen at 6 p.m., even if you were single and lived alone. You may have thought you were being lazy, but what if you'd simply spent your willpower for that day? In the book, The Way We're Working Isn't Working, Tony Schwartz further explains Roy Baumeister's analysis of the cookie versus radish test. In short, we each have one reservoir of will and discipline, and it is depleted by any act of conscious self-regulation, whether that's resisting a cookie, solving a puzzle, or doing anything else that requires effort. The implication, Baumeister writes, is that many widely different forms of self-control draw on a common resource or self-control strength, which is quite limited and hence can be depleted readily. Now, Baumeister also wrote a book called Willpower, and the fascinating thing about that is he links willpower and mental strength to physical strength. In one test, they had people come in and watch a nature movie, and it was a nature documentary, and it was a sad documentary, and they had three groups of people, and they said, okay, this first group, we want you to cry. Really let your emotions out. Really feel it. The second group, they said, we don't want you to show any emotion. Hold everything back. And the third group, they said, just react normally. Act the way you would any time you'd see a movie. So the first two groups, when they did a strength test with the hand grip, where you squeeze something with your hand to see how strong you are, both failed the test. They were weak with their hands. The third group that had just acted normally during the movie tested stronger. Why? Because the first two groups had worked their willpower. They were empty, and it impacted them physically. So there's all these really interesting studies about if you can work when you've got the highest level of willpower, you can really accomplish something great. So don't don't distinguish that, okay, if I do it in the morning or I do it at the night, it's the same thing. It's not the same thing, and there's a lot of great science that shows that. So don't start getting up earlier on your road to awesome just because it worked in my life. Get up earlier because you want the best shot at success. Get up earlier because you want access to your best willpower. Get up earlier because you want the way your brain works and the way your physiology reacts to be your friend, not your foe. The five-step secret to getting it all done. You rescue 30 minutes. You put your television and video watching on a diet. You are starting to hustle. You're making time for all the different things you want to learn about right now. And the truth is... You're going to be really busy. We all are. There are hundreds of things I need to cross off my to-do list each day. Respond to emails. 
attend meetings, return phone calls, answer text messages, pick up the kids from gymnastics and art, finish work projects, start home projects. And that's not even to say anything about our smartphones. Remember the first lie our smartphones told us? This will give you more free time. Do you feel like you've been given more free time now that you have a smartphone? Does being able to answer emails in the bathroom relax you and make you feel like you have more free time? And just as a side note, a PSA if I can, you don't need to talk on the phone in the bathroom. Do you know how many people have died because I won't talk at a urinal stall? Zero. You're not a heart surgeon. Stop. We don't need that phone call in the bathroom. End public service announcement. I realized one day that my list was getting longer and my days felt like they were getting shorter. I was having trouble getting it all done. In order to survive, I came up with a five-step secret to getting it all done. If you're busy too, feel free to use it. Step one, admit that you can't possibly get it all done. Step two, give yourself the grace to accept that as reality, not failure. Step three, do the things you can do with your full attention. Step four, celebrate what happens during step three instead of obsessing over the things you didn't get to. Step five, repeat as necessary. That's it. I was thinking about turning that list into an app, but checking it off would just be one more thing you'd have to do each day. Instead, rewind this, write down those five steps, and put it on your fridge or whatever the more relevant appliance is and start on step one. If you can get that one done, you're 99% of the way there, and you will have a much better grasp on being more awesome more often. The plane crash. Just beyond the forest of voices, where fear first got loud on the road to awesome, you'll stumble upon a plane crash. And while most of us would walk by with only that shameful curiosity we feel when we pass a car accident on the highway, if we're going to be awesome, we may need to stop and take a closer look. Since we've just rescued 30 minutes, We've got the time. I took a closer look a few years ago, and to tell you the truth, I always wanted to be in a plane crash. Not one of those jarring ones in the mountains where you have to eat the people who didn't survive. That's gross. I just wanted a section of the roof to come off, have some carry-on bags that were too big in the first place to fly out of the gaping hole, and then land safely and take a quick ride on the most exclusive slide in the world. I'd save a few people from a fireball of some sort, jump down that big yellow inflatable slide, and then wander in a cornfield, or float in a shark-free portion of the balmy Caribbean Sea for a few hours. Then I'd do a couple of interviews, maybe go on Letterman in a smart-looking sweater, and write a book. Best of all, I'd have something that near-death experiences always seem to deliver, a reason to live. No one ever survives a plane crash and then says, really made me want to watch more television. When your life flashes before your eyes, you start to realize how you've been taking shows about cake for granted. Nope. They say things like, my life will never be the same again. I hug longer, smell more flowers, and can taste capers in a way that you non-near-death experienced people will never understand. And so in my quest to find meaning, I thought that might be a great shortcut. The trouble is, it's not easy to get in a plane crash. Statistically speaking, it's nearly impossible. So... I decided to fake my death. All I did was build a small plane in my head and then crash it into the ground with a single question. If I died today, what would I regret not being able to do? You'd think it would take more than that, but pretend planes are surprisingly easy to destroy. I thought about the question at hand for a few minutes, and then I wrote this down in my five-star college-ruled notebook. Wide-ruled is for lazy people. If I died today, number one... I wouldn't get to write a book. Number two, 
I wouldn't get to love my wife. Number three, I wouldn't get to play with my kids. The order of that list should assure you that I'm being honest. I put write a book above love my wife and play with my kids. I bronze meddled my own children. What a jerk. And as a Christian, I should have at least given God a cameo on that list. At the bare minimum, I should have said number four, I wouldn't get to worship God. But in my defense, if I'm dead, then I'm in heaven with God. So maybe I'm in the clear on that one. Ha, that's good stuff. I love how he said he bronze meddled his kids. I've got a whole lot more I could talk about on this subject, so I may do a follow-up podcast to give a little bit more detail, but this is a really, really good start on the morning routine and why it's so critical to success. Just a reminder, here are some of the books that were mentioned on today's show. Obviously, The Miracle Morning by Hal Elrod, Quitter, no, I'm sorry, Start by John Acuff. He wrote another book called Quitter, which is also a book I recommend, especially if you're suffering from job dissatisfaction or you know someone who thinks their job is really crappy. Quitter is a really good book. And then we also mentioned Snowball by Warren Buffett. Your homework assignment for today is to try and get up at least 30 minutes earlier than you normally get up. All right, that's it. We'll cover more on this topic on the next show. We'll see you later. Thanks for listening. We hope you found a few nuggets of wisdom that you can apply to your life. Until next time, take action. Keep hacking and stacking your way to success.